You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge Knives. Now, Outdoor Edge has a large range of fixed and replaceable blade knives and game cleaning kits. Now, imagine this. You just shot a deer in the backcountry or an elk or whatever, and it's time to break it down right? It's hot. You're a long way from the truck. So time is a factor and you got to get the meat back to the truck. So there's no waste. Your blade becomes dull. So instead of having to stop and sharpen the blade, all you do is you take your outdoor edge knife, you push a button on the handle, the blade pops out, you put a new blade back in and you're back to work. You get back to the truck, there's no wasted meat, everybody wins. Now, if you want to find out more information about Outdoor Edge and their complete line of knives and game cleaning kits, all you have to do is go to OutdoorEdge.com and when you check out or you decide you want to purchase a knife, enter the discount code NATION30 and you're going to save 30% off of your purchase. That's NATION30 and that's OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand. Beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 52, Shane Mahoney and the Wild Harvest Initiative. Nick is joined by a true expert in the field of conservation, Shane Mahoney. He and his partners are undertaking an amazing project of quantifying the wild harvest of hunters, anglers, and foragers. Being able to calculate the amount of wild foods harvested is a powerful tool in helping educate both sportsmen and non-sportsmen alike. Additionally, they discuss the current effect of COVID on the society's food system. Does the recent food shortage lead to an awakening of the home kitchen? Shane also dives into a dish that only folks from Newfoundland can obtain. Get ready to get waist deep in this episode. Here we go. Well, hey folks, welcome to another uh, episode here on the Huntivore. Uh, beautiful afternoon, and uh, I'm nervously anxious for this uh, conversation. Because this afternoon, I'm chatting with an undeniable expert in the field of conservation. He hails from Newfoundland, 
and he embodies every characteristic of a salty sea dog, yet has a voice and a storytelling a storytelling ability that Morgan Freeman wishes he had. Today, I'm talking to the CEO of Conservation Visions and overseer of the Wild Harvest Initiative. I'm talking with Shane Mahoney. Uh, Mr. Mahoney, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. I appreciate it. Um, just a quick current event. Uh, you know, people here in in the states are dealing with uh, that COVID nineteen virus, and it's uh, we're we're in this weird uh, scenario. Whether we are looking to open up or we, we're phasing in things opening up, how are things up there in Canada? Are you guys much the same? Where uh, we're looking to open up, or are you still pretty much isolated to homes? It is much like as in the United States. It varies across the country. Some provinces are further advanced in one way or another. Some are still dealing very aggressively with a major COVID outbreak, such as Ontario and Quebec, um, whereas some other provinces, such as British Columbia, Manitoba, are already starting to open up and you know return to a more normal circumstance. The border, of course, between Canada and the United States is still closed and will be closed until, I think, around the third week in June at this point. Um, so travel internationally is basically stopped. Um, and even domestic travel via airline, at least in Canada, is is minimal at this point in time, just as it is in the United States. So it's um, kind of the same patterns, you know, um, Various levels of infection, obviously, unfortunately, a certain number of deaths, a lot of older people that are vulnerable uh, make up uh, a significant percentage of the mortalities that have occurred. And uh, some very unfortunate scenarios in uh, care homes, old age homes, for example, which, um, you know, is kind of a terrible tragedy for people at that stage of their lives for this to to happen to them. Uh, and with care workers. But we all are approaching this, I think, from the point of view that it's a new reality. We have to try to deal with it as best we can, cope with it as best we can. And there are some positives, I suppose you would say, in the sense that uh, we have seen world governments, both in your country and this country and around the world, being able to do things very quickly that under normal circumstances would take them much longer periods of time. And uh, the race for a vaccine is unleashing the scientific potential of many, many companies and organizations around the world. It's pretty startling to see how quickly they are making advances. I mean, after all, this is a brand new organism. Nobody even knew this existed before, what it looked like, how it behaved, you know, what it, uh, how it would mutate, how it would affect us, how it would affect us. And uh, we're racing forward with tremendous scientific strides with respect to this. So, you know, crises bring out the worst and the best of circumstances for humanity. And I guess COVID is, is falling into that pattern. I was a, a junior in high school um, when the World Trade Centers were hit by those planes. And that that kind of solidified, especially when we went back to school. It really kind of set a, a stake in the sand that this was a memory that we were going to remember, not only uh, that event, but the, 
the details that surrounded that. Where was I? Who was I with? Uh, what were my feelings going on the next days? Um, I know my my parents had that same uh, feeling around uh, like the JFK assassination. Like yes. they they were young, but they witnessed that on TV, and to be mm-hmm. just at home with your family. This is, I think, another one of those major events that I think just generations we're gonna, you know, as uh, my kids grow up, they're they're much younger right now, and I think my kindergartner will remember kind of this time where we stayed home, but at the same time, like I think he's gonna have a lot of questions later on of like, what was that time like in 2020, and how we uh, yeah. how we were all affected by it. Yeah, well, it will have all those impacts, I think, and it will also <clears throat> coming back to not so much the J.F. Kennedy assassination, as tragic as it was, but certainly 9-11, it did usher in a new order. I mean, all of the things we see and take for granted at airports now in terms of, you know, inspections and security and so on. So many of them were born out of the 9-11 catastrophe, and they've become part of our normal lives now. Um, and I think COVID is going to introduce some of those same kinds of adjustments over time. You know, listening to statistics, it's easy to forget the individual stories that are embedded in all of this. But this is a terrible thing when people get it. And the people who become sick and die, obviously, we we recognize that as a terrible thing. But the ordeal that people go through with COVID when they become seriously ill with it and recover, you know, and I have friends who have had it. Um, they tell you it's like they certainly have never experienced anything like it before. So, you know. At one level, we get frustrated with the restrictions and, you know, all of that, you know, for obvious reasons. Then on the other hand, you think about what happens to some people, even some young, healthy people who get this virus. There are circumstances where people in their 20s and 30s and 40s have contracted this virus and died in some cases very quickly. So, you know, this little organism finds every human being as a unique landscape. We're like, we're like a habitat they can live in, but each of us is unique, right? And so how that little bug, you know, thrives and invades us and sort of parasitizes us is going to be unique in every single circumstance. And uh, it's, um, it's not something we can afford to take lightly. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really liking your your approach to this this idea that you are examining this not just as a fuller realm of a virus, but you're looking at it as an as an organism. What what is it trying to do? How is it mutated? And your perspective is one of someone who has spent uh, decades in the scientific field. Um, who you uh, you've got a couple degrees in zoology and a lot of experience in the field. Where where did this uh, drive to be a zoologist and, and and a scientist? How did this develop in you in a in a younger age? Were you were you an outdoorsy kid, or were you just really fascinated by the natural world? Well, I think if you if you grew up in rural Newfoundland at the time I did, <laughs> you didn't have much choice but be an outdoors kid because <laughs> there was certainly certainly no way you stayed indoors. And I don't know if you would have been allowed to anyway. So we all kind of grew up, uh, you know, kind of like uh, little natives. You know, we 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 explored the world around us and that world around us here in our culture 
uh, was very much focused on other animals. You know, we are a fishing culture, obviously, on the island here, have been for 400 years. Um, and, um, you know, uh, that engagement with the natural world as a hunter-gatherer society makes you aware of a lot of connections with wild things, both fascination with them. Yes, that was certainly true. And not just with wild things, but also with the domestic animals we had, you know, the pigs and the, the sheep and the chickens and the horses and so forth. They all had personalities, of course. Um, <clears throat> and also a recognition that we are dependent on the natural world. Um, so our food chains were short. You know, we, we had our own gardens and we harvested wildlife and we harvested fish. Um, there were a lot of foods we never saw because they had to come from far away and there was no way to get them to us. So we were very, very self-sufficient and very, very self-reliant. As a boy, um, more than most, even though we were all in the same bed, so to speak, more than most, I developed a fascination for animals. That has never left me. <clears throat> they still, whether it's the robin outside my house or the the ravens and, and crows chasing the eagles in the harbor here or the gannets that were diving for bait fishes the last 14 days outside my home. Um, they remain for me a source of endless fascination. And uh, although it is not, it, I have an odd mixture, I suppose, of values. I don't see any difference between us and the wild others at all. Uh, this offends some people, but I have to tell you what I believe after spending extraordinary amounts of time, most of it alone with animals. I don't believe there's any difference between us. Yet at the same time, I harvest wildlife, you know, I, I partake in hunting and fishing and so on. Um, and uh, when I say I don't see any difference, what I mean by that is um, they, each of them is unique and has unique capacities as our species does. I don't think we're better in that sense. Um, I also believe that it's possible for us to have relationships with them as individuals that are equal to relationships with people. Again, this offends some individuals, but I, I have to be honest about this. Those of us who have owned a dog or maybe cats or a horse or whatever the particular animal might have been that spent 10, 14 or 20 years of their lives with us, know that when they die, um, the emotions we, we, we feel are really no different than the emotions we might feel than if a human close to us died. And the people I find who are most able to understand that are, are, are frankly pet owners, people who own pets, whether they hunt or fish or not is not the issue here. Um, so I, um, I developed a pretty profound interest in animals. I was very fortunate in my research career for 30 years that I had access to wild places and spent time with woodland caribou and moose and black bears and coyotes and lynx and wild birds and so on. Almost all of it in uh, pure wilderness areas, no road access of any kind, only aircraft access. And those extended periods of time, up to six months of the year with them, often with very few people or no other people, um, it provides you with a very different perspective on what they are and what they're capable of and how they react. I have seen black bear mothers and, and caribou mothers do things in relation to their offspring 
that any human mother would identify with and understand instantly. Um, and uh, some people might say, oh, that's just instinct in them. Well, if it's instinct in them, it's instinct in us. We can't have it both ways, in my opinion. Uh, and so I never doubted that my life would be given to working for them. Uh, never. There was never any doubt. I was encouraged into medicine. I was encouraged to go to law school. I, I never had any qualms about those decisions. I knew what I wanted to do from a very young boy, and, and I made the right choice, and I'm still doing it. And I think it's definitely reflective in the work that you've done, especially through the organization of Conservation Visions, um, which you're the, the CEO of. Um, and I, I was surfing through the website, and I came across uh, a quote that, that's there. It's, it's one natural world, one humanity, one chance, and that conservation matters. Um, just in, in your... Uh, biography, or your, just your quick intro there that you were telling us about you, that there is a there is a connection between not just human development and human cultures, but there is a there's a place for both wildlife and humanity at the same spot. And your conclusions that you've come with is that we are one the same. We were put here at, for the you know at the same time, and there is a way that we can coexist without one having to suffer over the other. Can you explain to us, I know you did just a little bit um, about y your own background, but can you explain a little bit how how conservation vision works as far as trying to balance those two entities? Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's a, <clears throat> a really interesting and important question because the world has always been um, but maybe never more so than currently, has always been divided into either or, right? Us and them. Um, this viewpoint, that viewpoint, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, you know, whatever it might be. And um, I don't see the world that way. Um, maybe because my concentration is on the others and not on human beings so much. Although I'm deeply interested in human cultures because I come from a very unique one myself. Um, I feel that um, we are not only mutually dependent on one another, we are dependent on pollinators to pollinate our crops, for example, take a simple example. So even on little insects, you know, we are, we are incredibly dependent uh, on them. Um, and uh, so we have this mutual dependent on one another. And we're also all sharing the same globe that provides the necessities of life, that's water, air, you know, land that can grow crops or provide foods or oceans that can do likewise. And all those other living things are doing exactly the same thing as we are. They're, they're living in an environment. They're reproducing their kind they are pursuing food of one form or another sometimes in really strange ways i mean when you think about these giant whales that feed on these tiny tiny morsels of plankton and so on and so forth it hardly makes much sense you'd think they'd be eating huge things in the ocean instead of that you know they're picking up these tiny organisms but nevertheless they are only trying to survive I had a very close friend, a uh, much older man, uh, who was a, a fisherman, an inshore fisherman in Newfoundland all his life. 
He was the toughest man I've ever known. And I, I tell people, and there are other, others who know this to be true of him, that he would he would take his his iron bake pots and so on out of his oven with his bare hands. I mean, he was an incredibly calloused, uh, a working man, and he always had a great difficulty with whales because whales would tear up his nets, his fishing nets, and a single humpback whale, a big male at forty tons, gets in your net. It it, it shreds it, balls it up. You have to take it out of the water. You have to clean it. You have to dry it. So it had an enormous um, economic impact on him. And so he was always you know, kind of aggressive towards whales. But when he finally retired in his 80s uh, from fishing, imagine fishing until you're 80. But in his 80s, when he retired, I would sometimes see him down on a small cove uh, below his home where the bait fishes would come in and the whales, the big whales would come in very, very close to the beach on their sides in the shallow water to to uh, take these fish. And uh, I said to him one day, I said, Lewis, uh, I, I didn't think you liked whales, you know. And he, he was looking out to sea and he said to me, you know, Shane, they were only like ourselves. They were only chasing fish. So here was a man who spent his life chasing fish as a way to survive. It was his economy his, for his family and so on who developed an antipathy towards another animal that was competing with him at one time, but which he came to understand was essentially doing exactly the same thing that he was doing. Um, so I don't think I'm the only one who feels these things, but I feel them very profoundly that um, we're all traveling on this one small planet that turns around constantly, slowly. You know, we're all traveling together on this, and if we destroy it for them, we destroy it for us. If we destroy it for us, we destroy it for them. If we care for it for them, we care for it for us. I mean, you know. So I, um, I don't feel much separation between us and them at all, to be honest. We just live differently. That's a great way to sum it up. Um, and so you're not just this single nonprofit that decides, well, we're going to focus on one species, or we're going to focus on uh, one habitat. But the focus of Conservation visit, Visions is to partner with many different organizations in the pursuit of being able to, to bring these in a balance. Um, how would some of these partnerships work? Uh, was, I know I looked on your, on your page and I saw one for, for Pheasants Forever. How is the partnership work between you and a, another entity? It varies, of course, because every entity is, is somewhat unique. But overall, what Conservation Visions tries to do, we try to, first of all, give advice to those organizations and government agencies, et cetera, that are interested in a viewpoint like mine, which is a, a viewpoint, I think, grounded in ecology um, and which really cares deeply about the natural world, but also, also believes, as the name of my organization says, that there are many ways to get there. So it's called conservation visions, plural, for a reason. Um, you know, we need protected areas, we need sustainable use, we, we need all these different kinds of viewpoints and efforts to achieve conservation. 
So our role is to offer that kind of advice to the organizations that are in the debates over policy issues. Should we hunt? Should we not hunt? Should we sustainably harvest? Should we protect areas? Should we not? I, I give advice to organizations on that. I work with some organizations like the International Union for the Conservation of Nature to advance their objectives because they have objectives I believe in. So I work with them to help advance theirs. And then I think the third thing that Conservation Visions does is come up with big ideas. You may discuss one of them, like the Wild Harvest Initiative, where around that idea, we can also build a lot of partnerships. So a group like Pheasants Forever was involved in that partnership. We currently have about 35 other partners that are involved with that. And those partners include industry, such as uh, Sitka, Sitka Clothing, Sitka Gear, uh, Bass Pro Shops, uh, the Cabela Family Foundation, Leupold Optics, etc. And we have a lot of non-governmental organizations in there, while Sheep Foundation, Dallas Safari Club, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, etc., etc., Guides and Outfitters of British Columbia. Um, and we have state governments in Florida, Alaska, Nevada, Arizona, uh, uh, you know, that are part of this. And in that sense, we, we all work together around an idea that Conservation Visions provides. So we provide advice, we work with entities we believe in to advance their cause, and we develop ideas around which partnerships can coalesce, all with the idea of doing the right thing for wildlife and fish uh, on the planet. And the partnerships, you know, can range from very intense where we cooperate on social media postings. Uh, I provide reports, I write for magazines, publish books, produce films together. You know, in some cases the relationship is more advisory. They, 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 they seek me out to ask about questions that they're being faced with, what position should they take or not take. So it's highly varied. What is perhaps most unique about it is that you know, we live on an island uh, on the on the eastern skirt of North America. We're, we're not in the heartland of anything. We're as far flung as you can get. And yet our connections globally are they're very strong and they're very complex. So it's a very unusual little entity, conservation visions, I would say. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if it was... Uh, Autobahn, or if it was Leopold, that had his famous analogy that uh, if you're going to if you're going to draw out the water, you're going to have to also improve the pump. And he, yeah. of course, his analogy was focusing in on the more that we take from the land, you, you're going to have to put in something else more. Um, you're going to have to put into that so that mm -hmm. it can produce or it can you know come back to the level where it was at. And just, I love the idea of just you know going through conservation visions, and then the as you talked about these partnerships, where so many folks are are realizing we need to focus on this pump, we need to focus on the well itself because you know the or excuse me, not focus on the pump. We're doing a really good job at pumping out, but we need to focus on the well itself. So I'm I'm very encouraged yeah. uh, just by how how many partnerships you've been able to to create and how, like you said, there's many visions to what's going to be happening, but ultimately 
we're traveling on this one large planet that that's all we have. So that's very encouraging. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we ought to all remember as we get into our partisan debates, you know, and our ideological positions, that good planets are hard to find. Now, the last time we went to a new one, I think we, we went up there once, we put a flag and said, well, that was, that was good enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, so, you know, it's, uh, but anyway, I, I, we do only have one world. We only have one humanity. I mean, we come in different races and colors and religious backgrounds and uh, cultural uh, pedigrees, um, but we, we're all one. Um, and um, we have one world, that's for sure. And I think we only have really one chance at this. There's seven and a half billion of us now. There's no one that can doubt we're having an impact on the world. We may debate how big an impact and what we cause and don't cause and things of this nature. But I don't think anyone says we're not having a big impact on the natural world. And uh, I think deep down, if people reflect on it, whether they are bankers or plumbers or uh, newspaper men or lawyers or, or nurses or doc doctors or politicians or whoever, I think if they reflect on it, they realize, to come back to your analogy of the well, that surely there are limits to what the well can provide. And if you exceed them, then where do you go when you only have one well? Yeah, it's a very good question. Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. It was on someone else's podcast. I want to say it was the Wired to Hunt podcast that you were on quite a few years ago. And you had explained the idea of this new initiative that I believe was launching. So it must have been right around that 2017 mark. Um, but this new initiative was circled around the wild harvest. Uh, from my understanding, you are trying to calculate the edible resource that's harvested from hunters, anglers, trappers, and foragers. Am I right in, in that description? And where did the origins of this idea come from? Well, you are right. Um, <clears throat> it's a massive program I'm undertaking, as is easy to imagine, of course, and I'm only, only looking at it within the North American context right now, primarily Canada and the United States, but still it's a massive undertaking. The idea came from, um, you know, I believe in 
conversation, we have basically three problems. One is that too few people care about this issue. I mean, really care about it. Most people are more preoccupied with their own lives and challenges and problems, and they're not really focused on conservation issues. So that's that's a problem for us. The second problem we have comes back to this dichotomy we talked about earlier. Those who are interested in conservation are very divided. You know, some people say hunting is a bad thing. Some people say hunting is a great thing. Some people say protected areas are bad things. Some people say they're great things. You know, so the the small percentage of people that we have that really care are divided then themselves about what the best thing to do is, often on very partisan lines. And the third problem we face is we don't have enough money to work on the problems that we really need to work on. It's not because we don't have enough money in the world. We have it. We're overrun with money. It's just the way it's distributed and how it's used is not terribly effective. So I can break down almost any conservation problem, and it falls into one, two, or three of those categories. So in thinking about this, you know, you can, with the best of intentions, constantly struggle to do the right things in any field, whether it's fighting poverty or you know, trying to strike social justice, you can, you can put your mind to the most principled of tasks and put all your energy and talents into them and not have any success. And one of the ways in which you will not have success is if you are constantly fighting the broad tide of social change. So if you are on the wrong side of that tide of social change, and you're constantly trying to drag people back to an earlier position, you will simply exhaust yourself like Sisyphus. You'll, you'll constantly get that stone almost up over the top and then it will roll back down again. So I began to look at that problem and say, well, what are the trends in society that might make people more aware of the value of wildlife and wild things in their lives, even as city dwellers or no matter who they might be? And I settled on the idea of food. Why? Because food matters to everybody. Because food has become a cultural phenomenon, like we're fascinated with food now, different restaurants, you know, different cuisines. Chefs have become the, the superstars of the world. You know, uh, one time nobody knew who they were. Now, if you're an amazing chef, you're like a Michael Jordan or, uh, or whatever, you know. Um, and... Uh, and of course, everyone wants healthy food and everybody's concerned about where their food comes from. I mean, this is, this is a big social trend that's taking place. And I suddenly realized that the people who are, har are harvesting from nature, hunters, anglers, people with free range animals that they're raising domestically even, people who harvest wild mushrooms and wild berries and wild fruits and wild rices and wild grasses and wild honey and, and uh, you know, medicinal plants, all these things. When you start thinking about all of them, it's a big community. And when you think about all the people they share that wild harvest with, that's an even bigger community. And therefore, if we could start getting people to focus not on things like conservation, which some people are very concerned about, but others are not, what about we focus first on something that they really care about, which is wild, you know, healthy food and living well. And by that means brought them into the conservation debate. So that was really my motivation and my thinking. And uh, 
then when I started to look at this, I began to ask myself a whole pile of supplementary questions. Well, how much food do we harvest from the wild right now in Canada and the United States? How many species? You know, how much of each species? How much meat is that? How much fish is that? How much berries? I mean, and what I soon began to learn is that it's an incredible amount of food. And that food is being shared with family, with friends, with colleagues, with the disadvantaged, with people who do not have enough food. <clears throat> and I also began to realize just how many people do not have enough food in Canada and the United States. We have 40 million people in your country who do not have enough food. The wealthiest country in the world. We have three to four million people in Canada, same percentages really, if you think about our populations, in the same predicament in this incredibly wealthy nation of Canada. And so there's a real, there's a real social issue around food security that we're waking up to. And COVID, by the way, is sort of focusing our minds on all of this right now. Um, and so I set out to measure that amount of food, to ask people to think about its value, its economic value, because that matters to them too. Let's say, for example, that none of that food could be harvested tomorrow. Where would the food come from to replace it? At the scale of harvest we are talking about, we would have to make massive investments in industrialized agriculture to provide the kinds of foods that in some cases at least people are very worried about because pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, whatever, you know, might be involved. It's not involved in all of agriculture, but it's involved in enough aspects of it that people are very concerned about it from a health point of view. So I wanted to find a way to communicate with the people who are harvesting from the wild to say, hey, you're doing a great thing. And I wanted to reach those people who were concerned about their health and their food, but maybe didn't know how to do some of that harvesting and to say to them, you know, you should try it, this, you should think about this. And thirdly, I wanted to reach people who might not even want to do eat the food themselves, but would say, I'm glad others are. And I recognize that unless we preserve the habitats of fish and wildlife, that wild food will never be there for any of us ever. So maybe I ought to be concerned because my life is what it is, but maybe my children or my grandchildren will live in a very different time and space and this wild food will matter to them. I want to find any way I can to give a value to wildlife so that people, a lot of people, the majority of people will care. And believe you me, people criticize our politicians, but I'll tell you something. I spent 33 years in a government agency most politicians will not lead, but every politician will follow. If the public says loud enough they want X, they will get X. If the public says we want wildlife to be important, wildlife will be important. If they say we want natural areas protected and we want healthy ecosystems, we want clean water, we want clean air, and that's it, no compromise, we're not debating this. Every politician in the world will get behind this and do it. So I'm trying to find a way to work with the tides of social change and not fight against them. People want good, healthy food. I want to trim the sails of my argument to catch that wind 
ride with them, and along the journey explain that these wild foods are the best foods we can consume. Let's protect them and harvest them in a sustainable way. Excellent, excellent. Since the launch in in 2017, uh, this program you've been you've been talking about it, and you've been been getting a lot of people on board. What is how are you feeling the reception is from a lot of people that you are talking about this? Are they are they rah rah on on board for it, or or are they hesitant? I honestly have to say that I I've had a lot of big projects in my time. Um, and, uh, you know, there's always parts of projects that you have to convince people of. You have to work hard to make them see what you're trying to, what you see and you hope they can see. But in the case of the Wild Harvest Initiative, I can't recall a single person that I've spoken to, and there's been a lot of them now, or articles I've published or videos I've I've done or conferences I've spoken at, I cannot honestly recall a single person who reacted negatively. Even people who don't um, like hunting, for example, which can be a controversial issue, as we know, um, and would never do it themselves, totally understandable, they, they have a part of them that says, if someone is really utilizing the animals that are harvested for food, for their families and friends, that this is something, you know, they can they can live with. You know, they even even many people who don't like hunting can say this. Um, and on the other hand, um, even people who have you know become vegan and who practice that dietary choice for whom I have enormous respect, because that is not an easy thing to do, and I would find it very difficult to do. I consume a lot of meat, and and it, it just takes a real commitment for somebody, whatever their motivations. It takes a real commitment to become a vegan and stay healthy and, and do things right. I have a great respect for that. But even amongst uh, the vegan community, there is a small part of that community that will make exceptions around the issue of meat if the meat is purely wild because they believe that it is uncorrupted by you know the various things that can be part of industrial agriculture again not always but can be part of industrial agriculture so i have to say that the reason we've been able to build as many partners as fast and the the reason we've been able to bring in such a diversity of partners from state governments with all their bureaucracies to big corporations like Bass Pro Shops and, and the Cabela Family Foundation, now as a foundation and so on, as well as non-governmental organizations and big organizations like the National Wildlife Federation, etc. The reason we've been able to build that coalition is because we're talking about this item that matters to everybody, healthy food, healthy lifestyle. So I can honestly say the response has been tremendous. Even, even in the midst of COVID, we are signing new partners. We will very soon be announcing, and this is the first time it will probably be announced publicly, but it's so close I can, that the government of Alaska, the state of Alaska, Alaska Fish and Wildlife 
will be now a brand new major partner. These are all people contributing financially and otherwise to this program uh, of the Wild Harvest Initiative. And that's that's being signed in the midst of the COVID you know, wow. uh, pandemic. So it's very encouraging, I have to say. Excellent. Well, you hear, heard it here first that Alaska has yeah. now jumped on the wildlife or the wild harvest initiative. So that's yeah. exciting. That's very exciting. It is. It is very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. With as complex as we've come in, just with how, how technology is a part of our lives and an everyday thing. And as you said, money is just everywhere. I mean, in it, it just, just distributed in many different facets, but at the same time, We've come such a long way from what we assume to be this hunter-gatherer culture. But at the same time, we are still having the same concerns. And you mentioned that just with um, how food is distributed in our own societies here in the United States Mm -hmm. and in Canada, that we are still in those same yearnings of a hunter-gatherer organization that even though as a culture we've become socially connected from coast to coast but yet at the same time our food culture is still so important one shift that i think i've seen and maybe this is going to be the the tent the you know the the straw that brings it back is that we were we were outsourcing our own acquisition of of food we were hoping that somebody else or we were hiring somebody else or going to a restaurant that somebody else was was going to take over that and in this in this crisis now that has been pulled away that people are now having to rely on themselves uh, an observation that i made that early on the center aisles of our grocery stores were the first to go or the the big freezers were the first to go of the prepackaged ready to make ready to heat mm-hmm. you just heat and eat uh, foods and that the food shortage was was made then or that that's when they they called it there's a food shortage even though the outside ring of the the grocery store the the dairy the the eggs the produce the meat was still plentiful mm-hmm. are you are you going to see if you had a crystal ball are you going to see that this is going to be a large awakening for, for North Americans, that we're going to find that people are going to start making the kitchen more important than what it is right now? I think there will be some uh, longer-term impacts. It, kinds of, it sort of goes back to what we talked about a little earlier in the podcast, which is the, you know, the impact that 9-11 had on security and airports and on air travel generally and so on. I mean, I don't think that as a result of COVID, you know, everybody in the world will be digging uh, their own garden necessarily or things of this nature. But I do think that there will be attempts made to shorten food chains, uh, to develop uh, more food security um, infrastructure in in states and provinces and in countries. Um And I do think there will be a percentage of the public that will reflect on the fact that alternative lifestyles are still possible for us in Canada and the United States. You know, we we still are capable in in many instances and across vast areas of our countries 
of owning a small piece of land and being able to, you know, have our own hands and, you know, have a small garden and we as citizens can legally participate in the harvest of fish and wildlife and other wild products in the environment if we do it appropriately and legally. Um, you know, there are still many of us who, you know, a very significant portion of our diet comes from these short chain resources, I call them. I mean, you know, we, we, we get our eggs from somebody who has some hens and we, you know, most of the meat that we consume in my household, uh, the, the, certainly the majority of it, uh, the vast majority of it is wild elk and moose and, you know, other animals that I have harvested. And of course we have access to a lot of fish. So there's still a lot of people who, you know, have some percentage of their home food economy tied to relatively secure local short food chain issues. And so I think, I do think COVID won't revolutionize, you know, the whole world and everybody will fall in step like a group of people in a trance. But I do think that there will be components in society who will remember this and who will think about it and who will make some lifestyle changes. And you make a very important point. You know, um, it is so easy for those of us living in any kind of non-rural circumstance to fall into the habit even of let's go to the restaurant for, for supper or for lunch rather than make something ourselves and invest the social time creating a meal at home with our, with our families. Uh, and it's kind of natural, you know, people fall into that. They don't do it to be nasty or bad or something. Um, but, you know, suddenly we are being forced to rediscover. I mean, the number of people who have said to me that they've either taken up baking again or they just tried it. You know, they never made bread before, but now they're making sourdough bread, you know, and all these kinds of things. And almost everybody who says it to me are happy about saying it. They're not saying I'm baking again. It's a terrible thing. I'm really pissed off about it, <laughs> right? They're, you know, they're really happy to say, gee, I'm, I'm doing that again. And it feels really good that I'm doing it. And, you know, we're baking our own bread and it feels really good that we're baking our own bread. I really, I really haven't had anybody say to me, that I'm mad because I have to do that. They may not want the restrictions. I understand that, the the lack of choice, but the choices they have made in response to COVID are often ones they really like. So people say, I'm not flying as much. I don't know how I ever flew as much before. That's certainly true for me. You have people who say, I'm really enjoying, you know, as I said, baking again, or now I'm trying to... Uh, you know, buy larger amounts of fruit when it's available, berries, and, and make more jams. I'm, I'm getting conscious about the idea of putting things away, you know. I think some of this reality is, is happening to us anyway, even independent of COVID. As we get buried in more and more and more of our own kind, um, we, we have a sense of longing for something simpler. You know, there is nothing in the history of human beings, in our biology or our development over time, there's really been nothing to prepare us for living in a sea of our own kind. 99.9% .9 of our existence on this planet, we lived in very small tribal communities, you know, 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, that kind of thing. Only 10,000 years ago did we develop agriculture and start to settle in larger numbers.
And certainly it's only in the last century or so that we've ended up with cities with millions of people in them that some people live in. There's really nothing to prepare us for that. You know, our biology is about a community of people whom you recognize. You know who's good, you know who's dangerous, you know who you know, you know who you want to associate with because you know them all, you can recognize them all. Uh, that's what we're used to. And that's, of course, the yearning that people have for their cottages and their cabins and, you know, their times away and so on. And I think a few people, a percentage of people, I don't know what it will be, will come out of COVID saying, you know, it taught me a really important lesson. And I'm going to act on those lessons. And as much as I can in my modern life, I'm going to try to be a little bit more self-reliant. I'm going to try to be more interested in nature. Uh, I can't have a huge fancy garden like something in a magazine, but maybe I can have a few potatoes and a little bit of lettuce and a little bit of that. You know, I do think there's going to be more of that happen. And I hope, I really hope um, that it will, this kind of thinking will settle on the younger people, people, you know, from 20 to say 35, uh, because if they decided to make a change now, even a slight change in this direction, I think the cumulative change and benefit for nature that would come out of that will be really, really important. So I, I, I think there will be some renormalizing, you know what I mean? The shift, a slight shift in some of this. Gotcha. That's a, you know, there's a bright future here at the end. Cause mm. yeah, like you said, there's, there's people that are, they're going to be making some ideas. They're going to be making some changes. And that's, that's wonderful, wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. I've come now to the crescendo of, uh, of my show. And we, well, my podcast is all about food. It's all about taking the wild game and celebrating our lifestyle through the utilization of what, what you get. And so I've got, two dishes, my two dish breakdown. I'd like you to break down two um, with some specific categories. The first one is a traditional Newfoundland wild game dish. I probably assume it's going to be fish, but what is a traditional Newfoundland uh, dish that you enjoy? What does that look like? Well, there are a lot of them, um, but... um... I guess a lot of people would expect that we would go to fish, and there are a great many fish dishes, obviously, because we're a culture. But because people are expecting that, perhaps, from somebody from Newfoundland, maybe I could venture an alternative, um, which has to do with seabirds. So Newfoundland only joined Canada in 1949. Most people don't realize that, but we were an independent part of the British Empire until 1949. And one of the conditions, this is a, this is historical fact, one of the conditions of us joining Canada as the 10th province in 1949 was that we as a culture would still be allowed to hunt migratory seabirds, which no other entity in Canada, the United States was given permission to do, except for indigenous peoples. And one of the birds that we have long hunted, 
And of course, fresh meat was in short supply on this island for various reasons. It's not a great place to raise animals and so forth. We don't have a big cattle industry. Never did, never will. Uh, the, the meats we could get for the wild, like seal and seabirds, were very important. So there is a bird. It's called the common myrrh. We have our own vernacular, our own term. We call them turrs, T-U-R-R-S. They're a diving bird. They have a lot of myoglobin in their blood. Therefore, their muscles are very dark. The meat is almost black. It's so red. Um, and these birds are harvested uh, in the fall and winter time off our coasts from speedboats. And uh, they are then stuffed sometimes with smaller birds or sometimes with a, a kind of a dressing, a stuffing that's used in the bird. They are baked in the oven. And at the end of the baking, there is a pastry that is coated over the backs of these roasted birds, which is a pastry. We call it a paste on tune, which means a paste, a, a flour paste. It's thick, comes out browned and very light, sort of a, a bread-like bread texture, I suppose. Um, and those birds create a gravy that is very unique because of their very, very dark flesh and taste. Some people might think that these would taste very fishy, but they do not, in fact, taste that way. And But they do have a very unique, wonderful, wonderful taste uh, for those of us who are used to it. And that, of course, is served with root vegetables like cabbage and carrot and turnip and potatoes, of course, which are an absolute staple here. But it's the idea of the flesh of this wild bird, which nests in the tens and hundreds of thousands off our coast, of course, on our rocky islands, um, that those birds, number one, were so important to us, particularly in the wintertime, because we were running out of any kind of meat to consume. Um, and also because of the unique taste. And when they are served on your steaming plate with this dark, dark gravy that gets poured over then this paste, this flour pastry that's on their backs when you consume them, it's really quite extraordinary. And with a very robust Cabernet uh, red wine, something traditionally Newfoundlanders never had access to. So this is a, <laughs> this is a modern intervention but with a very robust Cabernet, uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful meal. And it's pretty unique. I don't know any other culture in North America that eats these birds at all. That is incredible Iceland. that you guys are the Iceland. only ones that can harvest this bird. So it's really something we have to come and know someone from Newfoundland to even partake in that dish. That is absolutely true. And uh, since 1949, uh, and it was literally, I mean, you can read the, the, the newspapers and so on the day that this harvest is incredibly important to the coastal people in Newfoundland. I mean, we had no roads. We, we lived in isolated communities, only accessible by boat. Um, and, you know, we didn't have the option of going somewhere else to get our food. We got it from the land and sea or we didn't have it. That was it. My second dish kind of gives you a little bit uh, more freedom. It does still include wild game, but at the same time I say freedom. This is your last meal scenario. Unfortunately, somehow, some way, you've been put on death row here, Shane, and you have, you have one wish, one uh, last meal 
that you get to have anything that you would like. What is going to be that dish? What are you going to request? And what are the sides? And make sure you're very descriptive because you you are buying time here uh, from the electric chair. Well, I have to tell you that uh, one part of the meal, but this would be an elaborate meal, obviously, because it's the last one I'm ever going to have. Um, so I think one part of the meal I've already described to you, I literally would have, that would be part of the main course, these tours, these seabirds. The other thing, though, that I would have is I would also have to include moose in that last meal. I'm a enormous fan of moose meat, and of course we have a lot of moose here on the island, and so we, we eat a great deal of moose. And uh, so I would want to pair up my tur with a good sort of maybe a good strip loin area roast of, or maybe even the back straps rolled of moose uh, that I would have with that. Um, I think to open my dish, I would probably have uh, some very fresh greens, such as some spinach with, with uh, crab meat on the top. We have a big crab industry here, of course. So very freshly caught, very cold crab. My, I always like to have my crab meat very cold. So I would start with that kind of a, uh, an opening. I would then have my tours with the root vegetables, with a side roast of, of moose, so I could have the land and sea connection here in my main course. I would have probably for a finishing, I would probably have some freshly baked homemade bread with thick slabs of or layer of what we call partridge berries here, partridge berry jam. It's a wild, bitter berry that makes an absolutely wonderful jam. Um, and I would have that probably with a dollop of cream spread over the top of that. Seeing it's my last meal, I don't have to worry about any kind calories of don't mean nothing. Uh, calories <laughs> or anything of that nature. Uh, I would have that. I would definitely have uh, my big Cabernet with the, the main course. I'd start my salad with a very cold, crisp Chablis for my salad and uh, crab meat at the start, then shift to the main course with my, with my big Cabernet. I would have my fresh homemade bread with my partridge berry jam and my dollop of cream. And I may even, I may even have a small glass of port with that. And believe it or not, which, uh, uh, probably people wouldn't believe, somewhere, either at the very beginning of that meal or at the very end of that meal, I have a, would have one superbly poured cold Guinness. I'm a big fan of Guinness. So if I had to squatch it all in for one last meal, you know, you, you'd have to come up with some really elaborate combination. So, and by that time, well, I don't know if I'd care too much what happened to me. <laughs> exactly. Well, that would keep the present kitchen busy for at least a day extra. So, Exactly. Exactly. Well, Shane, we have done a great deal of talking here. It has been wonderful uh, to get a chance to, to connect with you and to just have you explain what, what it is you, that you do and the passions behind um, the organization that you run. Um, where can my listeners find more about uh, conservation visions. Where can they read more about the Wildlife Initiative? Well, uh, really, it's very easy. I mean, they can 
go to conservationvisions.com. But if they just Google Conservation Visions or Google Shane Mahoney or Google the Wild Harvest Initiative, you know, they, they'll find it very, very quickly. Whatever search engine they want to use, just type in those words and you'll, you'll come up against us, I can assure you. And uh, I welcome um, their connections and any comments that they have. And also, we've just released a new website on the Wild Harvest Initiative itself, and we are looking for contributors, people who might write to write articles or provide a recipe of a wild food that they have. You may consider this yourself, uh, that we would then publish. Uh, we want to make this an interactive site where people of common motivation and passions for the outdoors and for wild foods can actually come together and relate to one another. So... Uh, please, uh, I, we would welcome your listeners uh, engaging in that in any way they wish to. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Shane, it's been a, a wonderful hour. Thanks again for uh, coming. Just hold on for a second, too. Um, I'm going to send our, our listeners on out. Folks, this has been a great hour of discussion. Uh, we have, we've learned a lot of things here, both historically, but then even gotten a chance to just think about even where where are we getting our, our food from and is this something that you really want to consider is this wild harvest initiative and really taking a look at your own food setup is your food acquisition close to home or is it a little further away are there some changes you want to make during this uh this covid event but whatever you do and whatever event always keep your knives sharp <laughs>